Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I would like to welcome a very special guest to today's podcast, Sheikh Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick. Uh, he's an internationally recognized scholar. He's a published author. He uh, has degrees for the University of Medina, from University of Toronto. Uh, he is an imam. Uh, he is an activist. Uh, he is a community builder, and we would like to welcome him on the program today. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Sheikh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, Sheikh, we find ourselves in very unique and interesting times. Uh, we're finding ourselves in uh, probably the, uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, a generational event. And uh, how have you and your family coped during this time? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, yes, this year, uh, 2020, with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, is the strangest uh, international situation that I've ever seen. Um, not that you know I haven't seen disease before, or I haven't seen confusion, uh, but how it's striking the whole world uh, at the same time. And then with the coming of Ramadan, um, it is another international phenomenon, uh, which is sort of covered over by this COVID-19. Yes. So how do we break through the barrier, you know, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, and really benefit? So it's been a challenge, you know, to us. But really for myself, because I, I do a lot of traveling and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the best times I've had in terms of being home with my wife and um my son and, and Dunner and, and, and his wife live with us as well. So like, you know, that personal time uh, has been special. I've uh, heard that from many people who are in the similar position as yourself. They're used to traveling extensively. And now traveling in generally for the next few years, they're saying is going to be completely changed. Uh, I believe uh, Air Canada just laid off 20,000 employees and their business has reduced by 95%. Um, as a historian, Sheikh, are you aware of anything like this in modern history that's affecting, you know, the, just this fundamental routine and structure of everyday life? Well, really, I mean, most people refer back to World War II uh, because mm -hmm. that was an international uh, affair. And, and the fact that um, <clears throat> the Allied forces you know, we're fighting in Europe and fighting uh, throughout Africa and fighting in Asia uh, that, you know, everybody on the planet was affected in a sense. And then, of course, when the nuclear bombs were dropped, um, this changed the consciousness of everybody in the world because of the fright. So really, uh, after World War II, there's been nothing like this uh, that has impacted, um, you know, humanity. And probably what has really... Um, made it more complicated is social media because mm. we're so connected together now uh, whereas in the past you have to like listen to a radio or watch a television get a newspaper but now we're simultaneously getting information from around the world so so this is something unprecedented mm. it's interesting that you mentioned world war ii because you see a lot of similarities for what has happened almost 100 years ago so for example with the recent Syrian uh, civil war, we have not seen this many 
displaced people or migrants uh, since World War II. And we actually exceeded those numbers from World War II. Uh, if we look at prior to World War II, the proliferation of fascism, you know, we thought, okay, we dealt with fascism. We have the United Nations, and uh, now we saw like some fracturing of the European Union, fascist governments coming, a lot of fascist ideas uh, coming back to the forefront. So, uh, and then now with this, uh, you know, pandemic again, causing a huge stress on global supply chains, uh, a lot of uh, chaos, alliances being tested. So uh, there are a lot of themes, I would say, uh, from that we saw in World War II almost 100 years ago and now. There was one thing, though, that was very bad for the Muslim world. The Muslim world suffered a lot after World War II. Now, do you see, hopefully, that there would be a different outcome for the Muslim world or for Muslims in general after this type of event? Like, are we primed for a mujaddid, so to speak? Well, I mean, you can look at it from, from two points of view. I mean, one, um, there's no doubt that there's going to be a major recession happening after this. There's an international reset in terms of how money is being transferred around the world and you know how power and authority is being looked at. So from that point of view, um, Muslims are already suffering. We've suffered the, the major genocides in Syria and with the Rohingya Muslims in Kashmir, and Central African Republic and Palestine. That's happening on the ground. We've suffered from disease like Yemen, you know, the cholera outbreak and, you know, so many problems we've had with malaria and whatnot. That's already happening on the ground. We've suffered from military conflicts and we've suffered from the fallout of weapons of mass destruction, you know, being blown up in our countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and what happens from that. So from that point of view, um, we will be in a very difficult situation on the ground in terms of wealth, in terms of disease, uh, in terms of stability. But if you look at it from the Islamic point of view, this is falling in line with the predictions made by the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, in the sense that as we move toward the day of resurrection, <clears throat> that there would be a time of a type of mass confusion coming in, uh, instability all over the world, oppression in, in so many different lands. And this would actually usher in the time of an international leader for the Muslim world, uh, who is the Mahdi. And um, of course, this opens up a Pandora's box, who is the Mahdi. But the reality is, you know, what has happened historically, and again, I tend to look at things as a historian. After the greatest calamities that have struck the Muslim world, there's actually a revival. Now, if you look back, for instance, in 1258, when the Mongols uh, sacked Baghdad, and you know they were they were coming through the Muslim world, destroying major capitals, killing 500,000 people at a time, and you know des destroying major uh, metropolises. And they reached Baghdad and they burnt the books and they killed the people, and uh, it, it was something like we had never seen. And one of the writers, uh, whose name was Ibn Lathia, you know, he even said, I wish I was never born mm. so that I would not have to be the one who would write this. And so they were likening 
the Mongols to, to Gog and Magog, Yajuj and Majuj. They thought this is the end. What else can happen worse than this? But after that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up the hearts of some of the Mongols and um, Berke, we have the, uh, one of the, the golden horde in Russia, you know, and then the Mamluks were raised up in Egypt. They defeated the Mongols in Ain Jalut. And following that, when the Mamluks took over, there was actually a flowering of Islam because it's during the Mamluk period that you get the great uh, writers uh, like, like Ibn Kathir and so many of the books that we're reading now actually came out during the Mamluk period. So it's almost what some call Sunnatullah. You know, it is that after this destruction, um, if we respond properly to the destruction, you know, then we can actually have a revival. So this is mm -hmm. Tajdeed. This is when life comes back into the Muslim world. And I believe, and Allah knows best, that we are actually being prepared for something really big because we're being hit everywhere. Nobody's coming out of this. And we're being tested. And even our very concept of Islam, are we ritualistic Muslims or are we really followers of the Prophet Sallallahu Are we sincere? So it's almost like you have this World Cup game for your football team, your soccer team, and you need to put them through a serious practice. Like the last few practices are intense before you go out for the World Cup because you need to be on a certain level in order to meet those teams that, that, that you would meet in the World Cup. It's not a regular uh, set of events. So similarly, when we come out of this, uh, and you can feel it, like, you know, Judgment Day is coming, like major signs are looming right in front of us. And, and just the fact that we are now locked down all over the world, just the fact that our masjids are, are emptied, just the fact that, you know, you look at Mecca and Medina and there's nobody there, making salat, but the workers, you know, and the imam. Who could have thought this three months ago? <laughs> you would be insane to think like this. Mm -hmm. So this this is the same type of um, mindset that the predictions of the prophet, peace be upon him, gives the reader. In other words, you know, apocalyptic events will come one after another, like beads falling off a string. And so that we're actually being moved into that mindset. And I look at it in a positive way because the Muslim world to a great extent uh, was stagnated. Our leadership throughout the world became impotent. Our scholars arguing over trivia. We're not using our resources. So now our backs are against the wall. But inshallah, we can rise to the surface because we've done it in the past. And inshallah, we can this time. You know, Sheikh, you've said a lot, and uh, I want to get into some of the things that you've said. Um, so uh, I'm going to kind of get back to um, in pieces which you've just mentioned right now. Firstly, do you feel now, um, obviously, massive changes uh, all across the world? And as you mentioned, we as Muslims have been suffering for many, many years, decades uh, prior to this. So... Is this some kind of equalizer? Do you feel that this is because, you know, for a lot of Muslims who are suffering, they're like, you can't uh, come out of your homes. That's great. I don't have a home. 
you know like for for many muslims it's like okay you can't go to vegas and gamble and drink out okay we don't do that so it's like do you feel this has become a great equalizer for a lot of people who are suffering this is not that crazy to deal with like crazy to deal with was uh, on the heels of escape, you're getting bombs behind you. Uh, you're trying to grab your family. You don't know where family members are. Um, dealing with poverty. Like if we look at, for example, even the economic situ situation in Lebanon just prior to this pandemic, there, there, it was an e economic catastrophe. Like no matter how much you had in the bank, the maximum you could withdraw is $100 a day. Like there's a lot of places in the world um, you know that 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 were suffering. Obviously, there was you know parts of the Khalij that they were trying to modernize and they're starting to have concerts and open up, and that's stopped. So that's that was just a recent trend that they had. But historically, they weren't necessarily like that, right? So do you feel that this has become like a uh, a great equalizer for the world because? As Muslims, we've been dealing with this, and it's new for people in developing worlds. That's why they're talking about suicide rates. They're talking about depression. There was a German finance minister who who committed suicide. Uh, I believe uh, there was also a uh, somebody in the health department uh, as well um, that uh, in one of the Western countries they committed suicide just to be just unable to deal with a lot of the stress. So. Uh, are you finding this as some type of equalizer for people now? Yes, I believe that uh, something very serious is happening. And I say this from the point of view of a person who's lived in different uh, type of uh, atmospheres. Like I, I was born in Boston in Cambridge. And um, I lived in a housing project in between MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard University. Okay, so I grew up and some of my tutors were actually from MIT and Harvard University. So I came in contact with some of the people who are actually, you know, carrying out the deepest type of uh, experiments and, 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 you know, the dealing with, uh, you know, knowledge on a different level. At the same time, I was living in the ghetto. And so I was, I was uh, you know, on the streets, you know, living the life of, of an African-American. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, helped me and gave me um, this experience so that when I was drafted, you know, to go to Vietnam, I refused. And I actually um, left the country and came to Canada. That's why I'm a Canadian now. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a war resistant. And so I, I, you know, made serious change in my life. And then I accepted Islam. And then shortly after that, I was in Medina. So now I'm living in Medina in 1973. There's only one tar road. I brought my family. We're living with Bedouins, learning Arabic, living in Medina, going to the sources, and then reading the sources, but having a background, you know, of, of being with the highest level um, authorities and, and, and intellects within the Western society. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I also had the opportunity when I went to school I went to Reed College, which is an experimental college in Portland, Oregon. This is where Steve Jobs uh, went to school, you know, the founder of Apple. Mm. And so, um, so I rub shoulders with them as well. And what I'm trying to say is that when you look at the moves that are being made now, something is ser something very serious is happening. 
and 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 the fact that Muslims have been attacked in so many different places, and so many different um, you know Islamophobic schemes used against us, it means we must be doing something right. We used to say in the Black Revolution in America, because I was in the '60s, I was on the ground in the revolution, and you know we used to say is that you know if they attack you, you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. If they leave you alone, then you know something's wrong. So really what's happening is that it's becoming clearer and clearer to people who have sense and who Allah guides that Islam is the solution. When you look outside and and, and you see, again, the pubs closing down and and the casinos closing down, you know, and people actually having to deal with social distancing, right, and then covering their face like wearing their niqabs now, especially in France, which is, you know, really uh, unbelievable because they were so much against it. But now, not shaking hands like they used to shake hands, um, being very selective in how they eat, right? Looking for wholesome, good food. So many things that Islam is teaching. So the people who have sense are going to see now, you know, that Islam is the answer. And I, and I hope, inshallah, even Muslims, that we who have been only practicing 20% of Islam or 50% or cultural ritualistic Islam, we can now realize that this is the solution. And, and if we don't hold on to the rope of Allah, there's not much else left out there in this world because things can change. Again, this recession comes in. Um, money can be useless um, with this so-called social engineering going on. You know, somebody's trying to force us apart so that we can't even look at each other and hug our children. And, you know, something is going on in the background. And and I'm not prescribing to any particular, uh, you know, theory. I'm not saying conspiracy theory. I don't believe in that word. Because people use conspiracy theory in order to try to negate, you know, options, you know, alternative ways of looking at life. But what I'm saying is, what I think everybody recognizes now is that something very serious is going on around the world and that Muslims and what you know Muslims have been doing, this is not the real problem. Because if you think that Islam you know, is the main terrorist, if you think that the, the biggest danger in the world you know, are Muslims, that's all gone now, right? COVID-19 is the boogeyman. That's the monster, mm-hmm. the COVID-19. Okay, so now people are embracing Muslims. And in, even in Toronto, and we've seen it in other parts of the world, when Muslims call the Adhan outside, the non-Muslims come and, and they listen to the Adhan. And in Toronto, at the Medina Mosque, they actually brought their children out and let their children listen to the Adhan. Mm-hmm. In Germany, let their children listen to the Adhan. This is, this is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Because spirituality, that there's a spiritual vacuum in Western society, which has now become international society, and Islam can fulfill this. But the reality is, are we actually practicing? And and this is where I believe that this lockdown and Ramadan coming is a blessing to us. It's it's like a wake-up call. And and we needed international wake-up calls. Uh, It has happened in the past, and this, I believe, is going to lead us uh, to something really big. You know, Sheikh, it's interesting that you say this, that, uh, you know, many people now, 
are rethinking, reevaluating their position. But one thing that I am afraid of uh, is you said that this is a wake up call. But what if we still don't wake up because it is not because of our dawah that people stopped drinking alcohol. It's not because of our dawah that people stopped a lot of this uh, sinning or taking time to reflect. It was Allah SWT that did this for us. And so a lot of times, you know, the Muslim community is, is very lazy. Somebody else will do it. That's right. You know, you go with your Lord and fight. Somebody else will do it. Uh, you know, Allah SWT will take care of this. You know, so for example, you mentioned France. Uh, and uh, I don't know if they've learned because they still have the laws on the books and they've re-emphasized that uh, a Muslim sister wearing a niqab, she has to, if she wants to ride the tram, she's got to take off the niqab to ride the tram and put on a mask. You know, the, the hypocrisy of that, you know, that line of thinking. Uh, so do you think we will actually wake up and take this opportunity to give da'wah? And what does that look like? Because like, like you said, you know, this is time for us to wake up. But if we don't wake up now, when are we ever going to wake up? You know, because it, if, if we look at it, it is Allah SWT that made these conditions for us. It's not like the virtue of our da'wah, the barakah that Allah SWT gave in our da'wah. A lot of this is like on pause because Allah SWT willed that to happen. You know, that there's a, there's a hadith of the Prophet SAW, which has been so important to me to try to understand why these things are happening to us. And um, this hadith I found in uh, Abu Dawood. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Ummati hadihi ummatun marhuma, laysa alayha adabun fil akhira, adabuha fil dunya, al fitan wa zalaza wa qata. He said, This my nation is a nation that has mercy on it. Its punishment is not in the next life, but the punishment is in this world. And he mentioned three things fitan, zalazul, qata. Fitan is the plural of fitna. And that is a trial, a tribulation, a gray area. I mean, what could be a bigger fitna than the, the COVID-19 and what is going on? Fitna. The second is zalazul. That's earthquakes. And, and, and that can, re, can refer to natural catastrophes. And the third is qatal, which is murder, genocide. And so this has happened to us in the past. It's actually a mercy to us because we have mercy upon us. It's going to hit us in this life. It's a wake-up call. And we, we have to survive out of this. We have to come out of this. It's not going to happen right away. Because many Muslims are still living good, especially mm-hmm. in the West. They're living in their house, and, and they're having their biryani and you know their chicken and all the things delivered to their house. Um, they're enjoying themselves. They don't have to work, and they're still getting a paycheck. Um, so, you know, maybe they haven't learned yet. And so this is just, as they say, the tip of the iceberg. That's all that, that's all this COVID-19 is. Because to a certain extent, you can see that, you know, a lot of the information has been exaggerated, has been taken out of context. So we're not even sure how this COVID actually does hit people. Why is it not hitting other parts of the world? Why is it hit cer- certain places in the world? And so, you know, there's definitely a confusion, you know, that is around. But the reality is, um, it's not going to get better. From this, it's going to get worse and worse. 
until, as the hadiths are saying, before the coming of the Mahdi, of the great leader in the Muslim world, the earth will be filled with oppression. Everywhere you turn is oppression. Then Allah would send uh, this person to the world. And so as we move toward these major signs, um, there's definitely going to be a lot of confusion. But Allah still blesses us. Because even with a lot of people committing suicide now and in depression, and you see, especially in America and other places, you know, there's so many houses where the man has beaten his wife, uh, abusing his children because he's locked inside like an angry lion. Uh, and But Muslims, we have to fast. And one of the good things about fasting is, is that it takes away the sugar and the spices inside of your body. It makes you relax. Right? It, it tones down your sexual desires. And so during this lockdown, we've been fasting, which is a blessing, and which is, inshallah, helping us you know, as we're coming out of this to be able to have some sanity uh, when we come into the world. But it really is crucial for us uh, to really analyze ourselves and, and to change the way we go about practicing our Islam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells us in Surah Al-Imran, Ayah 154, that Allah might test that what is in your breasts and your hearts and to the mahas. So it's a purging of what's in your hearts and uh, of your sins. So perhaps this is this purging, this test that we're going through. Do you see any examples of leadership right now at all emerging within Muslim communities or the Muslim world at large that are showing a good example during this pandemic? There are many of the ulama, of the scholars and the leaders in the community who are actually uh, functioning in a beautiful way. They're, 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 they're dealing on the inside, there's virtual masjids going on. Uh, people are giving, you know, people are, you know, coming to the surface. And, you know, when I look at leadership, it's not just the imams and the teachers. There's actually leadership coming from the community itself. You can see leadership coming from the doctors and nurses. And, you know, it was said that in the UK and in America, you know, many of the frontline workers who gave their life um, dealing with, you know, people struck by the COVID-19 were Muslims. And you can see, um, you know, sisters coming to the surface, youth coming to the surface. And so something is, you know, moving uh, in the, the Muslim ummah. But I believe that it's actually a mercy to us that specific leaders are not identified. Mm. Because if specific leaders are identified, they will be hit right away. Mm. Forces of evil are set up in such a way that they can identify you and they can strike you. But now the Muslims are like a mass, just rising and rising and rising. You don't know, you know who's leading them. You don't know what's going on, what medhab, what movement, you know, what's happening. And this is what happened in the past when they would destroy our cities, kill our leaders, burn our books, and then suddenly there's another group of people who have embraced Islam, and Islam is rising up in another place. So really, that adjustment um, you know, is going on, and, and many of our leaders are, are being exposed. They are being exposed for their hypocrisy, and when the recession comes, and when the oil is now uh, useless, uh, societies, many of our Muslim societies are going to have to now look and say, okay, wait a minute. 
who is our real leader? What direction do we really want to go in? And so this is happening on the ground and, and even in our communities in the West. Uh, this is now, you know, showing us who are the real leaders. Because if the leader, you know, bases his leadership upon controlling his flock and keeping people in the masjid, and he's the only one with knowledge, he's the only one who can make dua, he's in trouble now. Mm. Because he can't do it anymore. His masjid's locked. He may be sitting in his masjid crying, waiting for everybody to come. But what's happening is families are praying together. You know, youth are praying, learning how to, you know, to, to give, you know, the khutbahs and how to lead salat and how to get knowledge from the Qur'an. And so what is happening, you know, it is a type of leveling of the playing field within the Muslim community. This is what's going on right in front of our eyes. And so when people come out of this and go back to the masjid, they're going to look at the imam in a different way now. Because they had to pray themselves. They didn't have tarawih inside of the masjid. They had to lead salat themselves. Maybe they, you know, if you have the madhab that allows you to read the Qur'an, you know, they, 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 they weren't hafid, but they read from the Qur'an. Uh, you know, sisters, you know, are, are leading their own salat where there's no men, you know, that is around. And so we will have to look at ourselves in a different way. And I believe this is really a positive thing because that's the way Islam is supposed to be. That the leader, as they would say, Sayyid al-Qawm Khadimuhum, the leader of the people is the servant of the people. Mm. And not the king or the sultan sitting on a throne and expecting everybody to serve them. Now we will see who really serves our community and who doesn't serve our community. So this is a wake-up call for those who will see. And only Allah knows uh, what will happen when we come out. But I tend to look at things in a positive way. Because historically, uh, I'm reflecting back to other points in history when Muslims suffered. Pandemics plagues, colonialism, racism, apartheid, but we still came back. And mm. so all everything is in place. Everything. We have the resources in the Muslim world. We have youth. If you look at the Muslim world, the majority of Muslims are actually under 25 years old. We have our sources. The Quran is there. The, the Hadith, the Sunnahs are there. We, we can get it even uh, online. Uh, we have access to knowledge. We have a great history in back of us. It's something inside. And this is where I always refer to the fact that Allah told us in Surah Al-Rad, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change that which is in themselves. So it's our hearts. It is what is inside of us that's got to change. And this lockdown, this isolation in Ramadan is forcing us to look in. We have to look at ourselves now. We can't hide behind, you know, a big dua with 500 people or a beautiful khutbah. We can't hide behind it anymore. Now we're here with our family, with just us and Allah, right? So we got to look inside of ourselves, you know, and realize who we really are. Because this, I believe, is the greatest challenge. It's an internal challenge in order to be able to come out on a higher level, you know, and to gain that change from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
That's a very interesting reflection, Sheikh. And I've uh, witnessed that. Uh, and I see that right now, even during the month of Ramadan, the beginning of the month of Ramadan, usually we would have more uh, division within the community. When is the first day of Ramadan? And that would be very politicized oftentimes. Oh, this masjid is doing it this and they don't know and, and whatnot. But this year, generally speaking, everyone be even started Ramadan on the same uh, date. I believe uh, I was speaking with Imam Nadvi a few podcasts ago, and, he, and uh, he mentioned that in Toronto, there's a small group that did it like on another date, but the vast majority did it together. So I think we are seeing that because I think suffering sometimes is the best unifier. You know, it's it's a it's a way of getting everyone to to come together. Oftentimes, uh, you would think that okay, maybe we have a common goal. This is something that we can achieve or ascribe to. But usually, in most cases, suffering is the one thing that can unify uh, almost everyone together. And with us, I, I believe what we're finding, and that was a very beautiful reflection that you made in regards to that. Uh, now. Here in the West, uh, and another point that you, that you made that I want to touch upon again is uh, the fact that there is no one person or one group that has emerged. You know, again, is a lot is a unifying factor. You know, I I I I I feel that that is also very very important because usually the first one to cause division in the Muslim community is ourselves. Oh. This guy thinks he's cute speaking on the member, you know, he's, you know, so-and-so he's from this manhaj or he's from this group or this organization. I, my ears are turned off, you know, so we're, you know, we're like the first ones to cut each other down even before. Oh, where's this person? Oh, oh they're, oh, man, these people are from, these people are Turkish. Oh, these people are of Saudi. Oh, these people are Somali. Like, uh, whether you look at it in the Muslim world, uh, whether you look at it uh, here uh, in the West. So now, how can we maintain this? Because we don't want to be like, you know, that um, that ayah uh, where uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Al-Isra, Ayah 67, that, uh, you know, when the harm touches you on sea and you, and you call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when he brings you safely, uh, you know, you 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 become ungrateful when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala saves you. You just become ungrateful. You forget all these lessons that you learned, all this introspection that you had. Now it just becomes business as usual. So how how do we prevent ourselves from falling into that and take this now to the next level? Especially for us as in the West, we have in our context, we have certain freedoms and opportunities that people in other parts of the Muslim world don't have. Yeah, well, this this really is um, a major test for us in that we need to be able to look beyond the pain. We, we, you know, we're suffering now, you know, some isolation, whatever, but we need to be able to look beyond it, um, you know, and to start to plan for the future. I do believe, however, that through the mercy of Allah, the pain's not going to stop. It's actually going to move. As they say, nothing's going to go back to normal. Mm. So Muslims are going to still be forced to come closer together now and still be forced you know, to look at the Muslim world in a different way you know, and, and, and to really begin to respect uh, other people regardless of their color or their tribe or their ethnicity because this has been holding us down in the past. 
you know, the marginalizing people, you know, and not respecting leadership, you know, based upon tribe or ethnicity. What happens is, is that things like the COVID-19 is a unifier because, you know, the virus is not a racist. The virus mm -hmm. will hurt anybody. And the fact that it's hitting Afro-Americans and, and, and uh, Native Americans and Latinos is not because of their color. It's because of their economic conditions. It, it, is, it has been set up in America in such a way that pre-existing uh, weaknesses and diseases are in those communities. And so when, you know, a disease or a virus, you know, which is striking, you know, the immune system, when the immune system's weak, you know, then the virus gains strength. Uh, so, but, but for Muslims now, um, this is a double test in that not only uh, do we have to reflect because of isolation, but we have to reflect because of what is happening in front of us in the Muslim world. I mean, just to look at Mecca with nobody there, it's haunting. It's mm -hmm. haunting. I used to live in Medina and Mecca. I lived in Arabia for seven years. It is haunting to see a place like that where so many people have frequented and you see it empty. And it's empty because of something nobody can see. It's invisible. And somebody's telling you from a laboratory that this is what it actually is. But then there's another scientist saying something else. So you're not even sure what it is. But something has stopped us. Something has backed us up. So now do we are we deserving to actually come back to that place? You know, are we, you know, on that level? So it's a double test for us, you know, to really, I believe, come out of uh, ritualistic Islam, you know, into real Islam, which is a lifestyle, and 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 be able to embrace uh, other people and to appreciate other Muslims. And I hope, inshallah, that we can begin to appreciate other Muslims and appreciate other believers. Mm. And uh, like, you know, a lot of the things um, that you've mentioned, uh, Sheikh, and a lot of um, the reminders that we get in the community, you know, a lot of times they're, they're, they're more general reminders. And I think now when we look at our path forward, say if you just focus on, okay, what is the meat and potatoes of the Canadian Muslim community moving forward? What are some uh, actionable steps that we can take? Because uh, again, at the end of the day, like to go back to what you're what you said on uh, previously, there is an agenda to a lot of what happens, and there's a lot of thought and planning. It's not just reaction, and you know, conspiracy theories uh, oftentimes are actually conspiracy realities, because we know people conspire uh, to move forward an agenda all the time. Okay, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a government. So now what is some actionable things? Because as a Muslim community, I feel sometimes we're playing checkers and the rest of the world sometimes is playing chess. We're like doing these reactionary one off moves. But now how are we going to go forward? Like, should we become now more active in the political process? Should we focus on uh, the social activism uh, but then what is the end of the social activism? Because, again, social activism is guided by governmental policies a lot of time. So, you know, what are some specific things now that the Muslims have to now move forward and Muslims need to start developing their own think tank and strategic thinking? What are some 
functionalities now that we need to start thinking about within our community? Well, I believe it's time for us to do a reanalysis of ourselves. And really, at this point, the first thing I think Muslims should do, especially in these last 10 days, is Tawbah, is repentance. To really ask Allah to forgive us, you know, for what we have done and what we have not done. And this is the time, you know, really for it. And when you look at Tawbah, it's really self-analysis and reconstruction. So to analyze ourselves, to recognize the wrongs we have done, analyze ourselves, and then uh, turn to Allah and, 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 and make the Tawbah and then make the intention not to return to the sin and reconstruct, reconstruct ourselves. Number one, Taqwa itself. You know, the, the, the fact that our Islam, that we, you know, the, the bottom line is the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and that needs to be, uh, uh, you know, reinvented in the sense or, or, or revived, you know, that, that closeness. Secondly, is that, you know, we have to emphasize more character as opposed to uh, ibadat. You know, in the past, in our schools and, you know, in our masjids, we emphasize ibadah, and that is crucial. In other words, worship. How do you pray? How do you fast? But now, especially with the younger generation and people outside of Islam, the question is, why do you pray? Mm. Why do you fast? You see, because really the character is the basis of it. The prayer, as the Quran says, will pre prevent us from evil and corruption. Fasting is supposed to give us taqwa. It's not supposed to help us to lose weight so we can put on our clothes, right? So, so the reality is character. That, you know, that character, you know, needs to be emphasized now in the way we look at our Islam. The next point is what I would call um, a, a, a type of unity. And, 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 and this is a type of unity, you know, where we accept the differences between ourselves, Learn to accept differences. In other words, the companions of, of the Prophet ﷺ, you know, they were different, but they were together. I would call it operational unity. Mm. What is operate? Now, this is now, you know, you know the, the bread, the, the you know, meat and breads. This is the structure. What is oper operational unity? Operational unity is to be able to work with somebody who is slightly different than you, but you're part of the same group. In other words, if you look at how Muslims practice Islam, they focus on different aspects. Some focus on prayer, some focus on study, some focus on tabligh, they like to go out and, and give messages, some focus on dhikrullah, some focus on calling to the good and forbidding evil. There's so many different ways, but how do you work together? I'll give you an example. In the time of the Prophet Sallallahu his companions were different types of people. And for instance, Khalid ibn al-Walid, right? He was a tall warrior. And, um, but he, he didn't memorize much Quran because he accepted Islam late. So when the companions were you know, together and it's time for prayer, and they look around, if they saw Khalid, they look for somebody else. Because he only knows Nas and Falak, you know, and a few you know, different small chapters. Then they would look and they'd find somebody like Abdullahi ibn Mas'ud, he's a thin Yemeni man, okay? but he's the master of the Qur'an. Mm. And so they, he, would, he would line up, they would line up, 
Ibn Mas'ud is the Imam, and Khalid and other strong warriors are now following a thin, small man. Because in terms of the Quran, he's a giant. Mm. See, it's operational unity. But after the prayer is over, when the enemies of Allah came on the scene, everybody would say, where's Khalid? Put him in the front. Now Khalid is in the front because he's the one to lead you against danger. You see, so they recognize the strength and weaknesses of each other. And I have said this in gatherings, and some people looked at me like, like I was crazy. And I said, you know, and I'm being straightforward. I, one time I was in the Jami Mosque. I was the Imam of the Jami Mosque for a while when there was only two masjids um, in Toronto. Mm. And we had the largest, you know, gathering maybe in the whole country. And I was going in between all the groups and all the nationalities. And because I'm none of the nationalities, I'm none of the groups, people accepted me. And, and, and I saw the division, petty division. And I stood up one day and I said, um, I have to make it clear. Abu Hanifa was not a Pakistani. And people said, whoa, like what's wrong with him? Something's wrong with his mind. He was an Arab. Then I said, uh, Imam Shafi was not a Somali. He was an Arab because we, we wear our madhab like a national identity, mm. not understanding that the Imams were students and teachers of each other. Mm. So this is operational unity, right? Being able to, to accept differences and still work together. Mm. Another important point is that the calling to Allah is not just words. Real dawah is providing solutions to real problems and you do it for Allah. When we provide solutions to real problems and we are unashamedly Muslim, that's the greatest dawah in itself. You don't even have to say anything. And we have an opportunity, especially in the West, because some of us have accumulated wealth, some of us have, you know, skills that we can use these skills to give back in the communities. And many people are seeing this because of the doctors and the nurses and the frontline people within the Muslim community are really playing a, a key role. I, in, in, in one part, I was in Guyana at one point in time. And, if, and, and when you're in South America there, the Dutch built a, a type of a, a dikes, you know, to hold off the Caribbean Sea. And, and this, these dikes, this, this seawall that is there in Georgetown, Guyana, um, it's, it's now getting weak and the water's rising because of climate change. And so the whole of Georgetown is below sea level. So we talked to the Muslims and we said, you know what we can do with our wealth? We need to go south as it's going up and buy land above sea level and establish places for people who are in disaster, places to feed, places to, you know, to, to help the community. And when the disaster comes, then we, this is the greatest dawah that we can do. I remember traveling in Turkey and we landed in a place, we were traveling in between some of the major cities and they have this, uh, these, these caravansarayi, they have these places where you could stop, you know, and whatnot. And you know, they said that the Ottomans, when the Ottomans came into an area, 
they would first build um, a type of, uh, build maybe a masjid and a little uh, a madrasa. But then what they would do, they would look at the community. What are the needs of the community? And so they would have a place where you could get food. They would have a soup kitchen. So you have a little masjid, a little madrasa, a soup kitchen. And then they would have a little medical clinic. Okay. And, and you know, so around this area now, the medical clinic, the food, and then they would invite in business people that they could sell their goods in the area of their imara, they called it. And that became a bazaar. And so from that, that is the basis of most of the Ottoman cities. That's literally how they began. They began by dealing with the needs of the people on the ground and assisting humanity. That is the greatest dawah that we can actually do, like living Islam and not just talking Islam. And so there's going to be an opportunity for us uh, all over the world, you know, and especially here uh, in this part of the world, there will be an opportunity you know, where the dawah can actually be a living thing you know, that we can give to the world, and we can actually break down Islamophobia and all the negative ignorance that is out there by acting like Muslims and being for real. And, and, and rubbing shoulders with people in society. And, and so this is a very crucial thing for us, you know, as we come out. Mm. Yeah, so I, no, I really appreciate that. That's, uh, you know, starting from essentially spiritual purification, making Toba, establishing this operational unity, being unified, at least not trying to circumvent one another, and then uh, being those that assist and help and uplift humanity. Now, have you and 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 you mentioned Islamophobia, and you've also mentioned your his, history with the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Do you see, uh, our like in my lifetime, I've seen Islamophobia become worse. Mm -hmm. Do you see some parallels with the civil rights movement and Islamophobia? And are you seeing Islamophobia also? The trend has become uh, worse and more insidious? Well, uh, many of the Western powers, especially you could say here in the Americas, they, they need to have um, a bad guy. They need to have an opposition in order to keep their strength. And right from the beginning, when they colonized this part of the world, they saw the First Nations people, the native people, as the other. So they were the savages. They, they were the nations they had to conquer. And so, and so they used that. And so when they conquered a certain amount of territory, then they, they brought in slaves, you know, to work their land. And when the slaves, when the African slaves and political prisoners made rebellions against them, they became the other. And they instituted laws. They instituted, you know, what they called the black codes. And this was in the South. And this is where they would demonize anybody, any person of color could be made into a slave. And... Even when slavery was abolished, um, they still maintained, you know, this type of psychological and then physical uh, control over people. And this is where the Ku Klux Klan, you know, comes in mm -hmm. and these hate organizations. And so Muslims, you know, represent a rising force in the world. In other words, we have the potential to replace Western society in dominance. We have, a, we have a spiritual code, we have an economic system. You know, when socialism you know, you know, is, has failed people, when capitalism is failing people, what is there left? 
Islam is really the only international system that was actually successful. They try to say, oh no, Islam is just a spiritual thing. No, Islam came for everything. And we had a system, we still have a system, where we're not basing our wealth on paper notes because these paper notes were only promissory notes that were made between business people in Europe from Venice. They would promise a certain amount of gold. And when you get to the other side, you take this note and, and you, know, you, you give it and you get the gold. So, but the paper itself has no value. So mm. our, our system is based upon trading uh, and buying and selling with, with objects of value in itself, intrinsic value. And so that type of concept where we allow individual property, but we don't allow monopoly capitalism. We don't allow anybody to monopolize our society. And we have zakat, which naturally this takes from the rich and it gives to the poor. You don't have to have a socialist revolution uh, in order to get your wealth because, you know, there's a ministry, you know, for the zakat. And when is Islamic society, you know, is healthy, then it's naturally given, you know, to the people who have need. That system is there and it can potentially uh, supersede the present system. And that, to, for many people, is the bottom line. Mm. The bottom line in this world today, uh, we're coming to see it's the bank. Mm. The bankers are the ones who are controlling much of what we see. M most of the politicians are only public relations people. Mm. And somebody in the in the back, you know, and, and, and that's based upon the wealth distribution and wealth control. And it's a natural phenomenon that's coming up. We have the potential to do this. So therefore... In the same way that the native people had the potential of, of, of fighting back the, 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 the colonists and the, the African runaways and, and revolutionaries had the potential to fight against the racists and, and the colonial society, Muslims have the potential to provide a healthy alternative to the world. Mm. People can actually have a healthy alternative in terms of their diet, in terms of their family in terms of their society, in terms of their political system, their economic system, it's a healthy alternative. And so therefore, in order to distance the people from the alternative, they attack us. Mm. So Islamophobia, which started in the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu when they called him different names, and they tried to say, you know, they tried to call him that he was crazy, he was a poet, um, that he was a, a wizard, he was a magician. They try to use all types of names, you know, on him to try to put him down. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continued to raise up the message of Islam. So this is a continuation as to what has been happening uh, internationally. And because of the rise of the Muslim world after the fall of uh, communism, the, when the Cold War was over, the potential rise now the, 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 the Islamophobia is trying to turn it back around. But unfortunately for them, they're not the ones who are ultimately in control. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we believe, is ultimately in control of all things. And no matter what they try to do, no matter how they plan, no matter what they've done, 5G, 6G, 7G, 
Mm. Whatever it is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the frequency above all of their frequencies. And this is what has kept us going. And this is what will, what will continue to, to keep us going. Right through to the day of resurrection. So we have nothing to be afraid of. We have nothing to be sad about, to go into depression. It's a test. Just like other people would put into a test. Read the story of Yusuf alayhi salam. If you think that we're locked in, we're in prison, we're doing time. Yusuf alayhi salam, the Prophet Joseph, peace be upon him, he did time and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blamed, uh, uh, blessed him while he was in prison. Mm. So being in prison, being locked up was actually better for him than being out in the society itself. So the lockdown to a certain extent for Muslims and then being locked down with food and drink and sexuality in Ramadan, it's actually a double blessing for us if we have the right attitude. If we have the wrong attitude, then we'll just become a prisoner who ends up fighting the other uh, inmates and coming back out in society and going into crime uh, in the same way, the same thing that, that led him to enter the prison. So we need to look at things optimistically and in a positive way. And the Prophet ﷺ used to say to his companions, whenever he sent them up, he, he, he would say, you know, on some occasions, Bashiru nafiru, yasiru He would tell them, give glad tidings. Don't drive people away. Make it easy. Don't make it difficult. Make the religion easy. Don't make it difficult. If there's a slight difference between us, mashallah, there's no problem with that. We're still Muslims. Mm -hmm. Even if somebody fasted or, or broke the fast on a different day, that's still my brother and my sister. It's not the end of the world. So this is the type of um, uh, lessons that we need to now reflect upon, you know, as we're moving out uh, into the opening uh, of, of the society itself. Mm. And uh, what I would... Um perhaps also comment on that is there needs to be definitely a level of authenticity to give our message weight. Uh, you know, you mentioned that we have, like we're seeing, for example, the financial system collapse just because of the way that it's structured and Islam has a solution for it. Um, yet there has been attempts in the past, like uh, especially here in Canada, let's keep it in the Canadian context. And I'm sure you're aware of this in Ontario, where they tried to come up with a lot of this Islamic financing, yeah. Islamic banking and so forth. But the purpose behind that was necessary, not necessarily principle, but more, it, it was just another market. It was profit. I've seen that with the halal meat industry as well. You'll see some people, they're not religious whatsoever. But this is a niche that they can get into, they can make some money, and so they take advantage of it. That's right. So there there needs to be a level of authenticity, I feel, for that to have weight. We have the solution, but it just can't be, hey, we're giving an Islamic flavor, but the motivation is still the same. It's like a dunya-based motivation. It's a materially-based motivation to just try to capture a different market or say, hey, this is an alternative. But at the end of the day, you're just going around to the same point. You know, you know what I mean? The same uh, objective. So uh, this uh, this uh, this sincerity, how do we establish that within ourselves? How do we get to that point where we can be uh, sincere? Because, you know, a lot of times it's like you can't you're not going to be called out. 
people won't, you know, uh, call you out and it comes down to yourself. How are we going to be sincere uh, with some of these solutions? Well, this is where, as the Prophet ﷺ said, Your deeds are based on your intentions and everybody will get what they intend. And then the Prophet continued, so if the person's migration is for Allah and his messenger, it will be for that. But if it was for the dunya, if it was for the life of this world, or to get married, then that's all they're going to get. So the intention is crucial. And this is why, even with the, the Islamic things that we, we're doing, the changes that we're going to go about, even before operational unity and before da'wah, that's why I said taqwa. Because okay. taqwa is really the basis of this. It's our connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if we didn't have taqwa in the past, if, if we were taking our Islam for granted, then just look outside at the people who are dying. Look at what this COVID can do. They say that in New York and, and, and in some parts of Europe, the people were saying it's like the angel of death is waiting outside for them. Mm. So think about the fact that how short our life really is. So if we do things, we need to do it with the right intention Right, and then we the means that we use should be Islamic. There's a concept, a wrong concept, which says the ends justifies the means. Mm. In other words, a person will well, take interest and in, I'll build this masjid. And there was one masjid they said, um, you know, we'll take the interest, we'll take everything to build the masjid. So people said, wait a minute, brother, what are you going to use the interest for? He said, no, um, we'll build the toilet with the interest. Because the toilet is nejis, it's unclean. So we'll use <laughs> unclean money to build the toilet. You can't fool Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. Allah that's knows next that's next level kiyas. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Allah knows your attention, right? Then yeah. then you come out with new products. There was another case, interesting case. Um with this brother came out uh, a couple of years ago in Toronto and he, he had halal milk. And so everybody said we called an emergency meeting because the, 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 the people are in confusion. Halal milk is all yeah. the milk we're drinking haram. Yeah. They said, what is it, man? He was saying, no, the milk you have has enzymes taken from pigs. And my milk is the only halal milk that there is. Yeah. So we got scientists and scholars together and we realized he was a liar. He was a trickster. Yeah. What he wanted to do, because if he had the only halal milk, in the GTA, he become a millionaire overnight. Yeah, yeah. So he was a trickster. Have you heard of halal socks? Okay, so this, I don't know what's <laughs> next. <laughs> There's a company called Halal Socks. It's an actual company. It was at uh, uh, the, uh, I saw they, they had a booth at the Halal Food Festival in Toronto. And so then... As does all uh, all the other socks haram like right. <laughs> socks, yeah. So really, you know, our, our intentions, what's inside of us, yeah. you know. And I believe if if we want to study an area, we need to study the heart. What is inside of us? Because the Prophet said that this heart is a lump of flesh. If it's sound, everything goes right. If it's corrupted, everything is corrupted. And that's within us, man. That's our conscience. It's our conscience, right? And and, and you, it's it's that which helps us to make our emotional and intellectual decisions. 
And that's right inside of us. And there are certain diseases of the heart. You need to study them. Pride, jealousy, uh, anger, conceit. Pride is one of the big ones that has touched our community. I'm proud of my color. I'm proud of my language. I'm proud of my passport. Some Muslims are even proud of his passport. His cousins live in a, over the border, but he thinks he's better because of the passport. Pride. And it is pride where the shaitan, the devil in the beginning, you know, fell and went to hell because of pride. It's one of the first sins. And it struck our community really bad. It leads to tribalism. It leads to racism. It leads to xenophobia. All types of terrible consequences come out of the, the pride of these physical things. Mm. When actually these physical things, Allah willed that we would look in a certain way. We would be born in a certain part of the world. And Allah has made different colors and nations, as the Quran says, that we know one another. You know, and the, and the color is not doesn't not make a person better than another person, but somehow, through our histories and through the ideologies of people, it has crept even into the Muslim world, where people will actually base their decisions on a tribe, and not necessarily on the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Prophet And I saw this because I was acting as a mediator to a certain extent, being this Imam and this huge Jamaat trying to bring people together. And I saw a lot of times that the reason why they didn't go with a certain person is because, you know, he's a Pakistani or he doesn't speak Arabic or you know, these Turks are too violent or, you know, these Africans, you know, whatever. It, it was tribal things. Mm. You know, instead of really judging the person based on the taqwa and based on the knowledge, and, you know, and their practical ability to carry things out. So, Do you feel that in the newer generation that that tribalism has now ceased or do you think it's just manifested itself in different forms? Like with this upcoming generation, the young generation? Yeah. Well, you know, tribalism is an ideology. It mm. starts off with an ideology. In other words, the people believe from their folk tales or from their science or whatever it is that they are superior to the other groups. So it starts as an ideology. Some of us had this in our countries when we came to this part of the world. From, from the Hindu countries, we had caste system type of thinking. From the Arab world, you know, we had light-skinned Arab, dark-skinned Arab. Um, you know, we had different types of racism and tribalism. And when we came to this world, um, and many of our young people, they succeeded uh, in changing because now... Many of our young people are Canadians, okay? And so that has leveled the playing field in the sense that they don't depend upon their tribal uh, ideologies. You know, in other words, when it's time to get married, um, I, used, I used to see people, you know, say to their daughter, okay, you can do what you want to do. But when it's time to get married, you're going to marry your cousin. Mm. I don't care what you do. Because they had a tribal thinking. The younger generation doesn't, doesn't think like this. My fear is that if the younger generation does not study history, if we do not understand the history of this part of the world as to what happened to the First Nation people, if you don't understand racism in this part of the world, 
we can fall in the same trap of looking down on native people, those no good Indians, or looking down on black people and thinking this guy is a thug, right? Looking down on people because of the racism that's coming through the media. It even comes in cartoons. It comes in our movies. It comes in our educational system. So there needs to be alternative education where we can understand the history of this part of the world uh, on the ground, really understand it. And then you can understand what it is uh, to be a, 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 a real Canadian or a real American. That's there's, a very beautiful point about understanding the history. There's a book I want to recommend. Um, this is outside the Islamic books. It's a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Mm. Lies My Teacher Told Me. And the author is called James Lowen. L-O-E-W-E-N. He's a, a Vermont scholar. And he gives you the history of Americas, the Americas, what really happened. Mm. Rewrites the history. And it's unbelievable as to what actually happened in this part of the world. And most young people would be shocked to know what actually happened, even right here in Canada. Mm. And we think that, that black people were running from slavery and they came over the border to Canada. And we don't even realize they had slaves in Canada too. Wasn't as bad as the United States, but they're actually slaves who ran from Canada down into the United States. So racism is here. It's in this society, you know, and um, a wise man who I met, um, he's from the Caribbean region. And, and he said a very wise thing. He said, racism in America is rotten and it smells like it's rotten. But racism in Canada it's rotten, but you can't smell it. Mm. This is a deep concept. It's rotten, but it has no smell. Mm. So suddenly you, you, you run into a glass ceiling when you're trying to rise up in your job. Mm. You're not accepted to a certain university. You don't get a scholarship. Certain things are happening around you and you don't know why. Mm. We have to understand the history of the country. And we're thankful, actually, and I am glad to be here in Canada and not south of the border, actually, you know, because, you know, at least, you know, we, people are thinking in a better way. But that doesn't mean that we go to sleep. Mm. We forget. And I have found, and I'm going to be honest with you, that even in some of the MSAs, Muslim Student Associations, that there was racism, mm. that the, the black Muslim students whether they be from the Caribbean or Somalis or East Africans, whatever, they were being discriminated against in the MSAs. Mm. I, had to, I had to actually go into some of the universities and have workshops on racism and to face-to-face -face deal with it and, and to let people bring their demons out because we have these demons inside of us uh, that we're carrying. And uh, alhamdulillah, the students were able to really come together and you know, be honest. They're probably more honest than their parents because many of the parents are like lost. They're lost in their cultures. It doesn't seem like they're going to change. But the younger generation, you know, can make a lot of changes now, you know, if we can really have that understanding of history. And of course, go back to Sirah, read the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu read the life of the companions, read the lives of the great men and women in Islamic history, so you have something to fall back on.
along with the modern history of this part of the world, say the past few hundred years, uh, from the coming of the Europeans to the Americas. Uh, try, you know, we all need to understand this in order to be able to chart out a way going forward for the future. I think those were some very beautiful points, and I really believe one of the things that you mentioned that we need to emphasize is know your history, become educated, and that way history won't, the, the negative uh, aspects of history won't repeat itself. Because the other uh, extreme reaction to tribalism is to completely lose your identity. You know, so for at least some people, they've left, they've kept to their Islam. Some people who are tribalistic, that's a means of them preserving their Islam rather than what you see happen with some of the second generation here uh, that have completely lost their identity, their religion. And they think, hey, uh, as you mentioned, that, okay, I, I, I'm completely, I have this passport, like my, everything behind me is gone. It's completely erased. Whereas everything builds upon each other. And yes, definitely there is this covert racism that people will deal with. And uh, for you to just ignore it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And this new generation, I feel we should study our history. We should become educated. We should have conversations like this that we're having with you. We need to connect with uh, we, we shouldn't make these artificial barriers between older generation, younger generation, between people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and even different education, right? Different scholarships uh, right. and so forth. It's There's just a rich fabric and mosaic which will make our community stronger, inshallah ta'ala. So I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, uh, Sheikh. Uh, inshallah, we want to continue having the, these types of conversations with you in the future. Uh, we want to be able to uplift our community, have some deeper level of conversations where we can get to the heart of a lot of issues that are plaguing our communities and um, really uh, think in a positive and pragmatic way how we can move forward, uh, whether in good times or bad times. That's right. That's right. So, Jazamakhir, uh, we thank you and uh, to our viewers, inshallah, we will see you all on Thursday for our next episode of the podcast, the last podcast for the month of Ramadan. Remember, we want to live by the haq, die by the haq, just when you think life is stuck, tune in to life haq. Jazama khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.